Hello, Jace. Hello, mate. Uh, we've just finished recording with uh, Jared James Nichols, haven't we? Oh, we have. What a lovely chap. It was an absolutely fantastic chap. Now, the only reason we're recording this little bit before we start proper, um, and it's not because I've cocked up or Jace has cocked up, which would be the normal reason for putting something <laughs> in at the beginning. Um, but uh, we don't know yet. We've not actually listened back to the recording yet. Um, but Jared's microphone just was going in and out a little bit, wasn't it? It was. It was the volume lever didn't go up and down, but it was kind of going from a full sound to kind of a, a slightly thinner sound, wasn't it? It was. It was muffled my end. Um, yeah, a little bit muffled. So we we're just warning you now. If Jared's voice is a little bit um, in and out, um, we'll do what we can to to maybe kind of patch it up a little bit. But it is there's not there's not a lot we can we can do with it. We haven't listened to it yet. It might be fine. But if it isn't 100, percent that's why you're getting this little this little message. Exactly. Thanks for listening. Hi, and welcome to 9 to 42, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. Join us for interviews, updates and chat with artists, influencers and those that manufacture the gear that we love. Hello and welcome to 9 to 42, which is the podcast from the guys at the Guitar Show UK. And... I don't know if I'm worthy to introduce my good friend Jason Hunt tonight, because, Jason, you were gigging over the weekend, weren't you? I was, yes. Now, were you headlining or were you supporting? I was the support act. Okay. And do you want to tell everybody what happened for the very first time when you were supporting? Somebody, well, four people came and asked for my autograph after my slot, so... um... Uh, I have reached uh, over half a century before anybody's asked for my autograph. It was slightly weird and brilliant. And after that happened for the very first time, what did you do? The, after the first? The very first time, what did you do? That first instance, what did you do? Taken aback in that moment, what did you do? I put down my whiskey, went and found a Sharpie, and signed my CD. And the next thing you did was you posted it straight to Facebook, <laughs> didn't you? I did, yeah. Literally in that moment. <laughs> it was weird. It was really weird. I was talking to um, Chris, the guitarist from the Headline Act, who's been on the circuit a lot, lot longer than I have. And we were talking about it after the gig, and he, he said, it is really weird, isn't it, when people ask for your signature? And I was like, yeah. It's, I... I I don't know, I, I, and you know, he bought me a whiskey as well for signing his CD, which was always good. Oh. <laughs> Perfect point to bring our guest in. We've got Jared Nichols with us. Can I say blues guitarist, or do we go guitarist? Do we do we keep it genre free? What do you reckon? Whatever you guys want, man. Yeah, <laughs> whatever you want. Powerhouse guitarist. Let's go with that. Powerhouse guitarist. Jared Nichols is with us tonight. Um, phoning in all the way from where are you actually? I'm in Nashville. Wow. Yeah. Phoning oh. in from Tennessee. From Tennessee. Signatures must be, you know, autographs must be sort of fairly normal for you. That must be the, the normal part of your week, is it? Well, it sounds so, like, pretentious to say, oh, yeah, of course. But it is when we play a show, like, one of the big things, we'll do, like, a little meet and greet beforehand. And then after the set, of course, we'll go out. And uh, for us, too, like, you know, we don't usually get to... Uh, interact much unless it's right after the show and i will sit out there and i'll do basically what jason did and i'll drink whiskey 
and yeah. I'll meet everybody and sign stuff. But the weird stuff, I was just thinking about this listening to you, is when you're like somewhere where you're not in guitar or music mode. Like, for instance, my wife and I were at like an antique mall last week. And all of a sudden I'm in this aisle and I have my hair pulled back. I'm wearing a beanie, like whatever. And all of a sudden this guy goes, whoa. And I look at him like, what's wrong? He's like, you're Jared James Nichols. And I was like, it was the most random place though. It was like this super old guy. And I was like, it was weird. And then like an hour later, we went to like this place to get a burger. And these three guys were like staring at me in the corner. And I, I said to my wife, I was like, I don't know if these guys want to beat me up or what's going on. I was like, they're really, really like checking me out. And then the guy comes over after he's like, Hey man, don't want to be weird, but can I get a picture? And it's just so that's the weird part. When I have like the guitar music head on, it's like, Oh yeah, totally cool. But when you're like in like a random setting, it gets strange. <laughs> so how long have you been in Nashville? I actually moved to Nashville um, in September of 2019. Before that I did nine and a half years in los angeles so that was kind of crazy so how you I, i've only i mean i've been to uh, los angeles loads of times because of the nam mm -hmm. show but i've only ever been to summer nam once and i made the mistake of booking a hotel that was approximately half a mile from the convention center and thinking nice start to the day have a nice wander in do the show wander back later i walked out of hotel reception on the first day got about 10 foot turned around went back in and went can you call me a cab i'm not walking in that heat <laughs> <laughs> it's brutal the heat is no joke yeah man yeah i don't blame you for that yeah I, I can't turn up for a full day's work dripping with sweat because i've walked for 10 minutes it's it's funny because i grew up in wisconsin which is like you know the midwest up north more towards canada and we had pretty brutal humid summers and I remember thinking, man, I never want to go back to that. And then I was in Los Angeles for years and it was like an oven. It was that desert heat. And then coming back to Nashville, it feels now I haven't spent much time in like Thailand or the Philippines or whatever. It almost feels like there is this like jungle mugginess. And it's like the, the, the summers are hard, man. It's crazy. So, so what prompted the move from L.A. to Nashville? Is it following the music career yeah you know actually one of my best friends was living in los angeles with with me and he got a gig opportunity to come to nashville and this would have been in late 2017 and i remember i was really bummed he was leaving but he said hey man check out this place i'm gonna get and he, he showed me a picture of like a house now in los angeles like if you see a house you're like you must be rich right and he's like man i'm renting this house and it was like half of what I, I was renting at the time and it was double, you know, my mine was double the price. So I was like, man, I want to come visit. So we eventually, my trio, we were on tour and we made a pit stop in Nashville to visit him at his new place. And I just fell in love with it. It was the first time I'd really been there and spent some time. We were there for three or four days. And as well, I was doing stuff with Gibson and all of that connection was there. And then I just kept stewing on it. I was like, man, I'd love to to kind of move there and see what's going on because it truly is guitar town as well. There's so much going on and so many opportunities. And for me, when I got here, I was still traveling and touring. I remember we moved here, my wife and I, a girlfriend at the time, and I had to go back on tour like three days later. I moved us into a place, got back out. And I really didn't get to spend any time here until March of 2020. 
when I came home from, I was in Switzerland at the time when we came home and I was in lockdown. And, uh, and then it, you can't uh, leave. <laughs> then I couldn't leave. Then I was stuck. No, but it's, from what I can say is, it's a really, really awesome kind of like culture of music here. It's not just country. And like, there's so much talent. And I feel like being here, like as a musician, when I'm off the road, you know, I have a, a deal right now where um, I write songs during the week and I have different, you know, opportunities to do that. And it's just really cool because it gives me different angles of doing music stuff. And it's just like, like I said, man, there's monster guitar players everywhere here and it's inspiring. Do you, do you find yourself hanging out at Carter and Groons and stuff like that? Cause I, yeah, I go over there. I used to go over there a lot more, but I got to tell you, like going over there, it's just like, sometimes it's just torture. You know what I mean? Like you just find like, I'll go in there and I'll be like, what's that? And it'll be like a 59 melody maker all trashed. And it's like, yeah, we only want 1600 bucks for it. And then you start to sit there and you're like, mm, can I? <laughs> so, but I've definitely frequented all those, all the guys that work there are my good friends. And uh, yeah, that doesn't suck having that right there. I tell you, I was going through your Instagram page and there's your 1953 Southern Jumbo with the maddest checking I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and when I was in Nashville, I went with the guys from Guitar Magazine and we went to, well, we went to all of them, Rumble Seats, Groons, and we ended up at Carter. Mm-hmm. And um, Chris, who was the editor at the time, was filming a video with the guys from Carter. So I was just kind of like sat in the store waiting for him to finish sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was me and Joe, and we were playing this 1953 J45, so effectively the same sort of thing. Yeah. And it was the greatest J45 I've ever heard in my life. Mm-hmm. And, and it was expensive, but not stupidly expensive. And right. It was three thousand eight hundred dollars, something like that. And I, and we were both like, "Do, do we just try and get this back? Uh, <laughs> just uh, you know, can we sneak this through customs?" But you, you can't exactly hide a guitar under your coat or anything, can you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's um that that guitar I got. Case in point with that. Um, and that's like a Nashville thing. I haven't found that anywhere else really around the States even where there is a, such a crop of great guitars still floating around. Like I was doing a songwriting session with um, with a friend of mine that, that I'd met through like writing during lockdown. And he was like, oh, you like old Gibsons, right? Um, here's Perk Up. <laughs> and like, okay, yeah. And he goes, man, I got this old Gibson acoustic off of a songwriter in Dallas, Texas. He's like, it's a total piece of shit. It will not stay in tune. And it's just like, it's all cracked. And I was like, show it to me. So he pulls it out of his closet, (laughs) right? And it's that guitar. And I was like, immediately was like assessing it. You know, you know how we do. We're all like terminators. We're like, what's the bridge angle? What's going on here? And um, I kind of get it in tune. The strings are a million years old. And he's like, see, it doesn't stay in tune. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing with this thing? And he's like, he's like, what are you going to do with it? You know? And I was like, come on, you know, I like stuff like this. So he goes, all right, I'll give it to you for what I paid for it. He bought it for 800 bucks. <laughs> so all of a sudden I bring it home. I put a fresh set of strings on it, play it for about 20 minutes. And the thing's not going out of tune. And it sounds killer. It's just completely dried out. And like you said, it has the craziest checking. But like, I feel like there's still that kind of stuff in the air around here. I'll, I'll stumble across stuff and I'm like, 
how has no one scooped this up yet? You know what I mean? Oh, I suppose we, we should. I mean, we'll get onto your new album, which comes out yeah, January no 13th. But if we should, while we're talking about guitars, we should talk about, I mean, I, I you are incredibly lucky, I think, that you've got, I mean, you know, you've got Dorothy, which I think mm-hmm. is a fantastic story, um, mm-hmm. which we should tell now, and Old Red, um, which is a beautiful looking guitar. They're right over here. They're going to hear me talking about them. I'll have to bring, I'll have to bring them over when we're done. Um, yeah. So I, I am extremely lucky. I don't take the, I don't take these guitars for granted. Truthfully, like there is a sense, and I'm sure you guys can feel this now with these instruments where it's, they're so like, it's like money, 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 right? You know, like, so like sometimes you forget how great of instruments they, they really are because everyone goes, oh, he's got this or he's got that. And, you know, especially like, you know, when I'm hanging out with Bonamassa and stuff, it's like, I just see his collection. And even in my head, the first things that go off, I'm like, there's eight fifty nines, money, money. But there's a reason, like, especially with the guitars I have that I'm super lucky is because not only are they, I'll use the word player grade instruments, but they're so good. They are like such great instruments above being cool 50s Gibson Les Pauls. So I feel really lucky about that. It's not like I have something that I can't play or I don't even look at it, you know? So starting with Old Red, that was the first the first guitar that I even I was dipped into the vintage world with. So um, in 2019, and you guys just stop me if I keep talking too much, but in 2019 at the NAMM show, when I released my um, Black Star Amp, and my Epiphone uh, Old Glory guitar, this guy comes up to me and goes, hey, man, do you mind if I take some pictures of your set? He was like a Southern guy. I was like, yeah, sure. He goes, my name's Charlie Daughtry. I run this thing called the Les Paul Forum. You may have heard of it. And I was like, oh, yeah, for sure. I was like, I've never posted on it, but I go on there and look up everything like everyone. And um, he goes, if you ever make it through Houston, I'd love to have you come over and check out some of my guitars. And I said, funny enough, man, I'm going to be in Houston in like three weeks. So... By the time I got to Houston, I hit him up. He came over to the venue. He picked me up. We cruised back to his place. And you guys, I'm not even kidding. Like, he lives on a little island outside of Houston, like right on the Gulf. And when we walked into this guitar room, I honestly lost my breath because I was like, oh, my God. Like, 15 of the most ripped up gold tops you've ever seen. Burst, uh, everything, train wrecks, Dumbles, Marshall, like... I'd never seen this gear in real life. So he goes, yeah, start picking it up and playing, blah, blah, blah. So anyways, me and Charlie hit it off. He's got awesome gear. He lets me borrow a 56 Junior for the show. And I'm like, oh my, you know, I never never played one like on stage. And that's where it really connected for me. Mm. And I said, oh, I get it. The resonance, the way that the, the electronics react. And, you know, I'm a fingerstyle player. So I was getting all this crazy nuancey stuff. So then Charlie has this red Les Paul and we were hanging out and he goes, oh, there's one more I wanted to show you. And it's this, it's not refinished, but it's a red sprayed over gold, late 1953. So he pulls this guitar out and immediately, like, I look at it and I'm like, yeah, pass it over. I plug it in. He looks at me. I look at him and he's like, yeah, that's pretty good. And I'm like, Charlie, what are you doing with this one? And he's like, we'll take it. See if you like it. So 
I took it. And I remember being on the plane and like walking in with this guitar. And at this point, this 53 Les Paul, it could have been a 59. Because to me, it was like, you know, fragile. I was like scared to have it. And uh, I bonded with that guitar and I still bond with it every day. But then uh, Charlie said, I said, I need to have this guitar. You know, like I was trying to be nice, but I was like, I need to have it. He goes, <laughs> I'll sell it to you for as much as I got it for. And what he got it for was before everyone thought Raptail Les Pauls were cool. So I got really, really lucky to have that guitar. So long story short, I'm bonding with this thing and I'm really kind of digging myself in this like thing because it's like, I've loved all the music like we all have. I love the music that was recorded on these guitars and the feel of them and stuff, but now I'm experiencing it firsthand. So then one day during the pandemic, I literally, I'm on Instagram and someone sends me a message and it has like the blurred picture. And I was like, what is this? Do I open it? You know, I was a little nervous. And uh, it, it says, hey, Jared, I know you like old Les Pauls. Check out this Les Paul that I found in my yard during a tornado. So I click it and it's a picture. It looks like it was taken on like a uh, Android in 2004. But it's a picture, <laughs> kind of blurry. And it's a body and it's the body of Dorothy and it's full of like mud and like splatters of just like, just looks like you took it out of a mud bath and it was on a table. And the first thing that I noticed, you know, cause now like all of us, I'm an expert, you know, like I know everything. No, I'm just kidding. But the first thing that I notice is I'm like, that bridge pickup has the two screws, like, uh, uh, like the early ones. And I was like, dude, what's the story? So I hit him back and the guy was like, oh, I can't believe you hit me back. So he was all excited. And he said there was a tornado in his hometown in 2014. And it like destroyed like whole streets of houses and stuff. This guitar had flown like four blocks. It was this woman's. It was her father's. She, he found out it was a small enough town. He found out whose it was. She collected the money through insurance. So she told him, hey, just hang it on your wall. It's not worth anything anymore. So he had been sitting with this guitar and he was a guitarist himself. He'd been sitting with it, literally sitting on his bookcase, an original 53 body with a snap neck. So I, he goes, I think I might get it restored. You think Gibson will do it? And I was like, uh, yeah, but I was like, maybe don't take it to Gibson. I love Gibson, of course. I said, but if we have, if you have like a 69 Chevelle, you're not going to drive into Chevy and be like, hey, can you fix this up for me? They're not going to know what to do with it. You know what I mean? It's it's a total different yeah. different situation. So I said, listen, I can hip you to some friends of mine that could fix it. And I said, and also, if you don't end up fixing it or you're sitting on it or whatever, I said, please keep me in your thoughts. I would love to buy this off you. So I text that picture to Bonamassa and he calls me right away. He's like, what is that? And I was like, dude, I don't know. This guy just sent me a picture on Instagram. And the next day, the guy whose guitar it was calls. He goes, hey, man, I was talking to my girlfriend and uh, yeah, I'm just going to give it to you. I don't really need it. And I said, no, you can't because I said, dude, this, is, this thing's worth money. You know, it's, it's not. And he's like, yeah, but I didn't buy it, so I'm not going to sell it. Long story short, I go drive up to Illinois. I drive like six and a half hours to meet this guy. And I said, can I please buy you dinner or something? Like, let me do something. And he goes, eh, whatever. So I meet him at this local music store. He pulls the husk of Dorothy out. 
And I'm telling you guys, like it almost looked like someone pulled an artifact from the early 50s and was like, here you go. And I, I like held it in my hands and I was like, oh, shit. So I said, you want to go get dinner? He's like, no, let's just go get a beer. So I literally bought the guy the beer. We hung out for a half hour. And then he's like, all right, well, I got to get up for work in the morning. So I'll see you later. And I leave with that guitar. And long story short, I end up hooking him up with one of my signatures and stuff because I was like, I can't do this to this guy. Like, and anyways, I, I send the guitar to JW Restoration in uh, outside of Philadelphia. And I got recommendation from him, from Charlie and Joe and all these people. And he comes back and he said, hey, man, this is a really early Les Paul. I said, how early? He goes, well, it's early enough that it has a center seam maple top, flame maple top. It's a thicker body, he said, and the pots are dating to 1951. Wow. And I was like, oh, geez. Okay, cool. So um, along more inspection, you know, he ends up sourcing all this like awesome wood. A bunch of friends are donating parts that are missing off the guitar, a set of tuners, you yeah. know, uh, the, the inlays and all that stuff. And um, Joel had the guitar for about eight months. And this story goes on and on, but I was touring. I was right near his house. I ended up basically saying to Joel, listen, either I need this guitar now, finish it, or I'm going to come to your door. I'm going to kick your door down and give me the guitar. So I ended up getting the guitar from Joel. I plugged the thing in, you guys, and it was just like, holy shit. So all the, t all the electronics, all, all of that, nothing is touched. It's all original. And um, it's wired like a lap steel, so it's really different. The, the controls are really, really touch sensitive. And it's just a fantastic guitar. So with that and with the red one, it's like, yeah, although they're probably only a year, year and a half apart, they're light years different in the way they react, the way they sound. You put those two next to each other and you close your eyes. You, you wouldn't even, you would say, yeah, okay, it's a Les Paul, but they're just so different. That's what's so awesome about it. So do you do you really love the P90? Is is that? I do. You know, I, I've seen pictures of you playing with humbuckers. Um, mm -hmm. I've never actually seen you playing a Strat or a Tele. Um, yeah, my thing is when when I first picked up a guitar, I was all about the Strat. Stevie, Jimmy, Buddy Guy, Otis Rush, give me the position four and a Tube Screamer, and I'm gonna play some Stevie Ray Vaughan licks. Right? That was everything. And I love that. And I quickly was finding out that whenever I picked up a Strat, it's like I only wanted to play like that sound. Like that's the only thing I ever went for. And nothing against that whatsoever. But I started to think to myself, man, what else could I do? And it wasn't until I was probably 20, 21, and I first started playing in my own trio and trying to get a sound together that I was doing the whole like Texas blues kind of style. And I just, I didn't believe myself, you know, it was almost like I was doing it because I was told to do it or like, this is what I thought would be cool. And then what ended up happening through a long winded story of like meeting Joe Perry when I was in Los Angeles, him borrowing me a Les Paul and saying, play a fucking Les Paul. And he's in a studio and he hands me a Les Paul. <laughs> and like sitting with that for like a week and then like playing and seeing the difference of the, the way that felt compared to a Strat 
and how different I played, even when I was playing all my Stevie licks, the way they came out was different. Mm. And what I ended up finding, long story short, is when I started to dig into like Les Paul's, like the the P90, I was like, man, I've always, I was always told it was like a tinny pickup. It, it's buzzy. You know, it's not going to sound full. And then I heard like Leslie West and Mountain. And I started to, I picked one up and I started to mess with it. And like I said, since I'm a fingerstyle player, I noticed like dynamically, it could go really, really stratty and really just obviously single coil and have that glassy tone. And then when I rolled it up, it just sounded like a dog that was ready to bite. And I was like, man, this is going to work for me. If I can get past the buzz and figure out how to be quick on the draw or, you know, either it was a volume pedal or I tried everything. I tried like a noise gate. I tried whatever. Ultimately, I just ended up using my hand on a volume knob. But (laughs) what it was, was I could get that glassy crystal tones and that clarity. But then when I rolled it up, it gave me all of that honk and that bite that I love. Yeah, they're my favorite pickup too. Are they? I, 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 I love them. Absolutely love them. I think a lot of people get mad though, because like I'll be playing like a P90 and like well, I've been on tour with friends and stuff, and like they're like, "Damn!" Like I didn't think P90s sound like you know what I mean. There's a predeceived notion I think about them, but man, it's like it's all up to the player. They're super expressive, and I think that's the coolest part is no one really messed with them that much, so they're still kind of archaic. And you get all the sound and they're buzzy and they're ratty. It's awesome. <laughs> so I suppose we should get onto your, your new album. I'm assuming you used Old Red and Dorothy on the new album. Yeah, I, I sure did. I, uh, I only used, let's see, I used Dorothy, Old Red, uh, that 56 Junior I was telling you about, and uh, my signature Gold Glory, or four guitars on the whole record. What I do love about you is that you are one of those artists that's got a signature model that doesn't mm-hmm. just get a signature model. Like, mm-hmm. there's tons of pictures of you live actually playing the Epiphone. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, when I released the first one in 2019, I had that guitar. It's in the other room. It's I still play that one, the one that they gave me to, like, basically the first one off the line. And I played that guitar for, like, I was on the road for like 308 days straight, but that was the only guitar I had. And I went everywhere, all around the world with that guitar. I still play it to this day. And then even with the Gold Glories, they're great guitars. Now, we can sit and we can talk about all this awesome stuff like, you know, old Les Paul, whatever. And we love it. But when it comes to just simply a great instrument, they knocked it out of the park with those guitars because... They have USA Electronics, Seymour Duncan, USA P90. All the electronics are true. They stay in tune great. They feel great. And honestly, you can beat the hell out of those things. And they're still kicking. And they, they stay in tune. Like, they, they check all the boxes of a guitar that I would need to take on the road. Oh, it's not a proper Gibson, then, if it stays in tune, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny, right? <laughs> when you were going through that process with Gibson, did mm-hmm. you... Was was there anything that you said about 
you know, I want it. I, I want it to be something that this kind of player can get into. So I don't want it to be too expensive, or I don't want it to be X, or I don't want it to be Y. Or it's got to hit this kind of level. It's got to be something that if it's a first guitar for someone, they can take it out, they can gig it. It's going to do everything they need to do. Did you have any of those kind of conversations with them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the the first conversation that we had was. Uh, Ricky Medlock from Leonard Skinner wanted to buy my original Go Glory and I wouldn't sell it to him. So he went to the custom shop and he was like, make me this guitar. And they were like, okay, cool. And then all of a sudden they got another guy who wanted one and they started to pick up on it. Like this guitar is kind of gaining steam with this guy that, you know, and I'll be the real one. No one really knows who this kid is, but he has this kind of cool guitar and and all these guys want it. So I remember the first conversation. They said, hey, we want to make that guitar like a signature guitar and i was like yeah okay amazing and the first conversation they're like yeah i mean we could do like a limited run in our custom shop this would have been we were talking in 2019 so this is before the new regime of gibson we could have made we could make like a limited custom shop run or you know i don't think it would make sense in usa because we'd have to cut everything specific or we could do something with epiphone which would be really cool and the first thing I said, I was like, Epiphone. Because to me, it it feels like the perfect platform for a guitar like this. It It's cool. It has a total different flair and vibe, but it's straight in the lane that I feel like, you know, someone picking up the guitar for the first time or even a seasoned pro like could get behind and say, wow, this is kind of cool. Maybe I could do something different on this. I wanted it to be a guitar that I could stand behind and say, look, I'm going to get all these sounds and I'm going to play it just as I'd play any level Gibson, but also you could have it. It could be attainable if, if a kid wanted it as a first guitar, a second guitar. And ultimately it inspired them to play. I even thought of it down to like, down to the little things. Like the only true aspect was that blues power plate. And at first I wanted to have that either you could put it on or off because someone might just like it off. And they, they, they might see that guitar and go, what the hell does that mean? I don't want that on there. So then they could take it off. But I just wanted it to be my guitar, but outfitted for everyone. And I, I felt like Epiphone was a, a perfect way to do that. And, and you've become a Gibson ambassador now, haven't you? One of only four. Yeah, it's kind of crazy too, right? Um, that came, so here's the story behind that. That came, I was hanging out with the new regime. I was at Cesar's house. And this was about mm, halfway through the pandemic. I got a phone call and he goes, hey, dude. I was like, what's up? He goes, I got greenie. <laughs> and I was, I was like, cool. What time should I come over? <laughs> so I remember I go to his place and uh, go up in his guitar room. And he goes, hey, I got to finish packing for this trip. It's in the case. Kirk said it was okay for you to play it. So there I am for like a few hours with greenie. And you know, mind's blown and we're sitting, sitting down afterwards and we're just talking about everything. And I'm talking to him about this record and everything that I had going on at the time. And I don't know how we got on the subject, but I just said, man, you know, one day it'd be awesome. I want to become a Gibson brand ambassador. I think that'd be super cool. And I think that, you know, and I was saying that like down the road, like I wasn't trying to like angle for anything. And, um, he was like, Oh, interesting. And I was on my way home and his assistant, was calling and I was like maybe I thought I left something there or whatever and she goes hey um we would like to formally invite you to become a Gibson brand ambassador we'll we'll reach out to you on Monday with further paperwork and I was like 
oh shit, okay, cool. So in turn, a lot of people are like, what does that mean? And basically it just kind of solidifies my identity within Gibson as if it wasn't there already. But also the fact that I can do a lot more guitars, a lot more different ideas. And also it's kind of cool because I get to like do different events with them. Like for instance, I just hosted this Guitars for Vets event where they gave a bunch of guitars away. Got to hang out with like, you know, the other cast of characters like Dave Mustaine and Jerry Cantrell and all those guys. And uh, it's just really cool. And, and I feel honored because I love Gibson. I love the the legacy. I, I love the people that are over there now. And it's just, I feel like it's awesome. Well, I think it pretty much is awesome. I'd love to. And I, I feel lucky. <laughs> I feel lucky because there's so many other people that are absolutely worthy of any of these things that I have. But somehow I was able to, to make it happen. And I just feel grateful for that. Maybe, Jace, you know, if, if word gets out about your four autographs, <laughs> come on, and it, and it starts to work its way over. I mean, this is a snowball, isn't it? This is this is really very close to the top of that hill. Uh, uh, yeah. Jason, do you have a manager? I feel like I could maybe help you. You know, we <laughs> we we could start to kind of guide you. And <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That'd be awesome. I, I, well, and the, the terrible thing is, I did that gig on an Eastman. Effectively, oh, effectively an ES three three zero, but they're T sixty four V. <laughs> that's funny with p90s though <laughs> all right i'll let it slide this time <laughs> so just well, just to dive back sorry jace before you dive in just because it kind of rounds off something we talked about earlier i know we need to get onto the new record which we'll get onto but just this is for me now just for my understanding with the, the whole p90 conversation do you think a lot of that has to do with playing with your hands i do i really do i think that there is i'm trying to equate it like Playing with my hands using the P90s, that's where I felt like that touch-sensitive thing. Because with, yeah. with a humbucker, it would be, I'll keep it short, but it would be very squishy on the neck pickup. I always felt extremely dissatisfied playing a neck pickup of a humbucker because I felt like it was just too mushy. And I couldn't really, I was trying to dig in more. And in turn, it wasn't sounding better. And then as far as, let's talk about a Stratocaster, it wasn't enough output. Of course, I could put a fuzz face on it or stack overdrives and, and make it work, but it would never have that true mid punch that you get out of like that Gibson thing. So I think that playing with my fingers lends to the P90 so well because the shade of that pickup, the way it is, pressure and the, the attack on the guitar really makes that come to life. Whether it's like, like I always show people, like I was like, you can do this. And I roll the volume back and I do chicken picking and all this really cool kind of glassy stuff. I can do like the Hendrixy double stops and all that kind of stuff. Or you can bring it up and it literally sounds like the most pissed off PAF you've ever heard, <laughs> you know. But yeah, I think it does lend to the fingers. I think that was a happy accident that I found that too. Sometimes those happen. No, and it's it's. I mean, I mean, I grew up listening to uh, Knopfler quite a lot, and I've always been in that, that. There's something about yes, you get some attack from your fingers, and you can, you can, you know, you can crack the strings with your fingers in a way, and you kind of ping them, and it does give you a really mm-hmm. a real sense of attack. But there's just it's just not the same. Those pads on your fingers just just it's it's like almost you look like you've got the roll off in your fingers to a certain extent. So that yes. shrillness from the pickup is being dissipated because there's just that little bit of give in your fingers, and it's always fascinated me. Um, mm-hmm. But I've not really thought about it from somebody playing with a P90 in the same way, you know, you, you could hear it when Knopfler was playing. Absolutely, you know, it was yes. so obvious. 
Um, but I can't think of many, maybe it's me that's not thought it through, I can't think of many Gibson players that have attacked the instrument in quite that way. Um, I think, yeah, I, I think also to, to add on to what you're saying, like when I hear a lot of people play with their fingers, I can say, oh, I hear it. I hear the fingers because I'm hearing the snapping of the frets yeah. onto the frets with the strings and stuff. And I always tried to make it so I could do either or. And I think maybe maybe there's something too with the P90 that kind of gives me a little bit of uh, like a, a cushion where it's mm. like if I it can blur the line between is he playing with a pick? Is he playing with his fingers? But ultimately, yes, using the the world's biggest picks, it cuts off all that top end, which is yeah. so, so nice to the ear. So I can sit on that bridge pickup, like on my old glory or gold glory. I can sit on that and just with a simple volume and a tone and the way I attack, I can get all those different dynamics. Hmm. No, fantastic. But really interesting because I say it normally. In my head, I've got it more as a, as a, a strap thing, far more of mm-hmm. a strap and a telly thing. So it's really interesting to hear this, this way around. Sorry, Jay, she was saying. No, I was just going <laughs> to say we really do need to talk about the new album, which I listened to yesterday. Um, awesome. Yeah, um, I would have listened to it, but Jace didn't send me the link. I forgot to send him the link. Come on, I thought man. I'd done it. I know. I will send him the he link. Was, he was riding this. high off those autographs. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't know. Um, I, so I listened to it and I was like, I can hear the blues. Mm-hmm. The, there are elements that I don't think I've heard from you before where mm-hmm. I could hear the Beatles in there. Oh, yeah. And and I wrote and I've written written it down here and I've written grunge and then I've crossed it out and I've put Sabbath because mm-hmm. I think there's more Sabbath than grunge. Uh, is, would would you say that that was a fair I'm summation? So, yeah, I'm so excited that someone said the Beatles because like I feel like I'm a huge Beatles fan. I always get pegged, and I'm not complaining, but it's it's clear why I get pegged as just this big Opie blues rock guy. And it's like blues rock, blues rock. I love melody. I love counterpoint, you know, like the Beatles, like all of those elements truly make that special. So thanks for that. And yes, there was a lot of time with this record. I wouldn't say necessarily grunge. I'd say more Sabbath. If there was any elements of grunge, it would have to be like shades of maybe just a little of like Alison Chains. Or yeah, Sound I mean, that, just a little. That's what but... I thought. And then as I listened, because I was making notes as I was listening to it. And then sort of like, I don't know, by the time I got to track seven or something like that, I've crossed out grunge and I've written, no, it's definitely Sabbath. Yeah, man. I love those records like volume four. I mean, I grew up on that stuff. So um, for me with this record, it was the first time that, I, I tried to get out of my own way, not only as a guitar player, but as like a, as an artist and just write songs and let the songs present themselves. And then instead of me trying to force them into what I think they need to be, let's just grow them and see where they want to go. And I, I feel comfortable enough within myself to say, you know what? No, this needs more melody or this needs, you know, I need to dumb this down, whatever it is, and let the songs grow because... I feel like a lot of people, when they make a record or when they listen to a record, they go into it expecting a certain sound, maybe a certain thing. Like, I know for me, like if someone's like, oh, this guy's like a blues rock player, blah, blah, blah. I'm expecting blues rock licks, you know, pretty standard constructed songs. And with this, I felt like this was the first time I got out of my own way and I just wrote and played without kind of any barrier. So did you, is, was this a, 
recorded in Nashville sort of project? So this was recorded in Nashville at a studio called Blackbird. And when you listen to it, you'll have to send it over because I think you're going to dig it, man. It's uh, straight to tape. No metronome. I, yeah. No tuners. The only thing that's overdubbed is like three little reverbed guitar parts and my vocals. That's it. I, and you can really tell that it feels live in the studio. Mm -hmm. It was loud. It was really well, loud. That was the other question I'd got. Was this recorded on full volume? Because it sounds like it was recorded on full volume. This was recorded on like full, full volume, like to the point of after we were done, I swear, like, <laughs> I'm not proud of this hearing damage for sure. So I was running a Blackstar Artisan 100 watt and a 68 Super Lead 100 watt together. Jesus Christ. Right behind me, full out with a Klon and then a Tube Screamer to boost that. And then I had a Leslie cabinet over there. And then I had like a Wawa and an Octavia. And that was it. And my band, we essentially set up as if we were going to play a live show. And one speaker, like six feet away from the guitars, that was it. Everything was tracked as if we were playing a, you know, a live show. But surely I couldn't stand in front of the amps. Because if I stood in front of the amps and played, I can control the guitar. I couldn't hear the band. I couldn't hear the guys play. Like legit, I couldn't hear the drums, which was crazy. That's insane. I know I had um, Dan Hawkins from The Darkness come and do the guitar show a few years ago. And he was at, he was with Marshall and he bought two of his super lead heads and mm -hmm. put them on full volume. I knew what was coming. So I'd had to give everybody in the audience the opportunity to have earplugs if they wanted them. And he set off all of the car alarms in the car park. <laughs> oh, my God. People don't know. Like, and I don't mean that like uh, in a weird way, but like I'll, I'll have players come up to me and they'll talk about this amp or this amp and they'll be like, yeah, it's essentially a 100-watt Plexi. And, or this plug-in on their computer, yeah, this sounds just like a Plexi. When you are in the room, and this doesn't, not only a Plexi, but like this Blackstar Artisan, when you are face-to-face -face with a dimed 100-watt amp, it's almost as if you're walking into like a burning inferno because you're like, holy shit, it makes you play different. The guitar starts, they fight each other. It's crazy. It's great though, isn't it? <laughs> It's so great. It's so much fun. It feels like you're driving in like a the most like souped up badass race car. And it's like at any moment it could crash and burn. It's like you literally feel that way. And when we were playing on the record, I remember Eddie, like he didn't have a computer. He just had the old controller. Um, and we used Ozzy's Blizzard of Oz tape machine, which I thought was cool. cool. But all of a sudden I go, and all of a sudden it stopped. And I go, and the tape would start and you go, we're rolling. And me and my bandmates would look at each other put the amps on and it would be and all of a sudden it was like one two and we were in and it was just like it was an experience man it was cool it, is it, did you find it much more fun recording essentially live rather than you know building them up drums first blah blah, blah. i did i did because always in the studio people would say to me at shows man you sounded so great sounds so much better than you on a, on your records i'm like geez thanks so with this one, it served as the menu 
Like the, yeah. this record will serve as a menu for the live show. And we walked in there and, you know, being in a, in a recording studio can kind of be like, you can have a pressure, like you feel like I need to be perfect and I need to make sure that I know all my parts. We walked in there like a really, really well rehearsed band. Everyone wanted to play. And we were just like, let's just play. And all those solos, everything was, I'd say, 75 to 80% off the cuff on the floor with the band. There was a few things that I'd had like worked out that I was like, oh, this would be cool to go over this part. But most of it was just me feeding off the band, feeding off the tone and the vibe of the songs. And it's cool because it came out like nothing I've done before. It just feels kind of like mental. There's a lot of like parts of it where it's like, Yet again, you don't know if it's going to crash and burn or it's going to do something really cool, like different feedback stuff where it's just like, it's awesome. I'm I'm really excited with the way it turned out. So it's out on January the 13th. Mm-hmm. We can see via your website that you've got two gigs, one in Nashville and one in LA. Are you going to get Record over releases. here? I am planning on it. We haven't been there in forever. I feel like it's been a lifetime. But yes, we are going to be coming back over they're looking at some summer festivals and then a full full tour in late summer, early fall. So I can't wait to come back to the UK, man. It's been forever. It's one of my favorite places to play, ever. Oh, it's, it's been a weird couple of years, though, hasn't it, really? So. It has. And we've had opportunities, and then they go away. It's like, hey, guys, we're going to do this tour, and then it's like, we're going to announce this, and then it's like, we're waiting, we're waiting, and then it's like, okay, that's not going to happen. So... But rest assured, man, I will be back. I can't wait. Absolutely, well, we're, we're nearly back to normal, aren't we? We're, we're we're nearly back to normal. Well, yeah. I mean, we. I mean, I've been to quite a few gigs lately. Uh, we went to see uh, a fellow Nashville. Um, what Nashvilleian? Is that what they're called? Um, Nashvilleian. Yeah. Uh, we went to see Jason Isbell a couple of weeks. ago. Oh, nice. And awesome. I'd had those tickets for nearly three years, I think. It's just so weird. Like, I, I still can't wrap my head around it. I don't know how you guys feel. I was talking to someone I work with yesterday, and I said, man, we have not been to the UK we were talking about in almost three years. Mm-hmm. I thought it, I remember leaving out of London City Airport going, I'll probably be back in two weeks to finish this tour. Yeah. And it's like three years. So anyways, it is just crazy, but I I can't wait to get back out. And especially with this record, you know, I think it's just going to be really, really awesome to come back and just kick ass and, and you know, set set the new bar because I feel like, you know, that was then, this is now. Like, it's it's time to come back full force. Well, if you're hanging around in the UK in February, end of February, guitar show's on. Let me know. <laughs> yeah, man, come on. I'd love to. If I could wrap something around, like getting a few gigs over there, I would totally do it. Awesome. But I would, I would love to come there. Oh, we can make that happen. Of course we can make that happen. Figure it out. Let's play it. We'll play a a few pubs. We'll do do a few pub shows and we'll just knock it out. Yeah. There's bound to be some reason you need to come to Blackstar. Bound to be. Let's go. Just tell Joel. Joel, we need to get Jared into February and tell him that, you know, it's it's super important. We've got a lot of stuff to do. And they should be able to swing it. I'll drop him an email tomorrow. Do it. (laughs) <laughs> all right I just tell him that you've got, there's a major u.s amp manufacturer that's been sniffing around so like star want to hang on to you then oh yeah i'll tell him i've been getting a lot of hits yeah yeah the guys from uh, boogie have been on the phone uh, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, constantly. Yeah. They keep sending Jared all these mesas, and he's using them as like propping open the doors and stuff. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, before we go, we need to thank our sponsor. Well, we do. So thank um, you, Focus Right, uh, who are wonderful people. Uh, and Jace, you want to put your line in? Oh, this podcast is made using the Scarlet 2i2. There we are. <laughs> Beautifully done. Thank you very much. Still takes you by surprise, doesn't it? It does every time. <laughs> Jared, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, looking forward to seeing you, obviously, in February now when you come over. <laughs> yeah, come on. Um, Let's go. So we'll see you there. And if you wouldn't mind sending me a link to your new album because Jace is clearly. I'll send it now. Out. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, guys, thanks a lot, man. Thank you. Bye bye. Cheers, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to 9 to 42, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. If you've enjoyed the show, then please remember to hit the subscribe button and share with other like-minded souls. For more information about 9 to 42, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at the Guitar Show UK. This has been an A Short Stories production. <laughs> <laughs>